It's a club no one wants to join, and you can never leave. Those of us parents who've lost children. I met Brenda Daly at Bereaved Parents USA in St. Louis this summer. Several of us there had lost children to fentanyl poisoning. We continue our series from the conference on Grieving Out Loud with my conversation with Brenda. When people would call me on the phone, you know, God love them, they were so good to me, but I had to say, I got to get off the phone. There would be a wall that would come up, and I took care of myself. I need to get off now. How you eat, how you, you know, go about your day. I would have one thing on my list of things to do. Sometimes I didn't even get that done, but, you know, just just, uh, my advice is just get some support. Brenda's son's addiction to painkillers started after a traumatic brain injury. The loss of Kevin took Brenda down a new path to study grief to help others in this unfortunate club to which we now belong. Well, Brenda, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, and I'm so sorry about the loss of Kevin. Fentanyl was involved in Kevin's death. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, My son had a traumatic brain injury about 11 years before he died. And that was kind of the beginning of the trauma for me. I was in trauma for 11 years, I say. But he fell, and he had a bleed on his brain, and he had to have his skull replaced with a plate, and it didn't close all the way. This led to a terrible chronic pain problem. I mean, he lived with for 11 years with terrible, terrible pain. And at the time, you know, their solution was to give him Oxycontin or Oxycodone, and boy, they all gave it to him, and it was a lot of Oxy. And eventually, you know, it helped him with his pain. He could function, he could get out of bed, but he got addicted to it. And then it began to be abused, and he eventually, well, they changed the formula on it. You know, they started recognizing the addiction that was going on, and they started changing the, the formula. So a lot of people would have that sense of they weren't getting enough, so they would take more, and then he would run out of his pills, and he'd detox, and then he'd have to wait for his next prescription, and it was this insanity. So he decided to quit using. So he didn't use for six months. And it was awful, though. He suffered mightily. I just, I, 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 he's a hero in my book because of the way he suffered. So, so there's this thing in the world of pain management. They don't know how to help people like this. So they're either throwing drugs at him or they're pulling him away. But the last week of his life, he went back to his doctor to try to get some pain medicine. And they said, well, you told us not to give you any because you were addicted. So they didn't give it to him. So he went to the gym one night with $10, bought a pill. I mean, this is what I believe happened. I had a number, and I could tell. I knew I'd given him, we'd given him the money. He had $12 on him, and 10 was all was gone. And there was one pill. When they did the autopsy, they said, you know, you can see he took it for pain. He didn't get high on this, but that he had had, there was fentanyl and something like Sudafed that mixed together and interacted with an enlarged heart. So it was a combination. And, you know, I then found him. You know, he was staying at my house, and I found him. You know what was really tragic was the night before. He was really trying to stay away from the pain medicines and using alternative things like meditation and all kinds of things, and he was going to a 12-step program. And he walked in the house that night. It was like midnight. And he came up to me, and he said, Mom, his friend, and the 12-step program. He said he was sponsoring this guy, and he hadn't drank for 35 years, and he went out and he drank, and he died. And I said, yeah, it's a 
a terrible disease. And he said, Mom, I think I've had this since I was a kid. And I said, yeah, probably. You know, we were talking about the, the whole personality issues. I knew what he was saying. And I said, yeah. He said, good night. I said, good night. That was my last conversation. And then the next day I found him. That was like a premonition. You know, I think him saying that, that someone had relapsed and died. And then he did the very same thing the next day. And that week before, I had seen some things going on. And I I was seeing some of the enlarged heart, I guess you would say, symptoms. You know, and I looked at him in the hallway and I, I started crying. I said, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. And like there was a panicky feeling in my voice. And he said, oh, mom, it's just the head injury. I, I'm not sleeping because of the pain. But he looked terrible. And my husband and I looked back at pictures. And because he was in so much pain, we see the dark circles under his eyes. And it, it was evident. It was evident that he was just, it was bad. I feel so bad for him. And I feel bad for you. And then I think about finding your child. Now, I, I came onto the scene of my child's death after the paramedics were already there, but it certainly was traumatizing. I mean, how have you coped with that trauma? I'm sure you've had flashbacks. I've had flashbacks. Yeah, at first I couldn't sleep. I'd st- start to put my head down to go to sleep at night, and I'd be, boom, I'd be up. I'd stayed up. I was not sleeping. Like, I'd be up till 4 a.m. Um, how do I cope with it? I don't know. I just, over time, it's diminished. I've talked a lot to my therapist about it. In a way, I was glad I was the one that found him. It's kind of a weird thing to say, but it was traumatic, but he was my son. And I knew exactly what was going on in the room, where things were, what I found, what I didn't find. So I think if if his wife had found him, I wouldn't have known anything. She just wouldn't have been able to fill me in on all the little details I wanted to know. So there was kind of a piece like I brought him into the world and I kind of saw him on the way out. And it's kind of weird. I, I kind of had a feeling of like, it's okay. I mean, it was traumatic. I don't want to say that it wasn't. And what we had just built a house and it was two weeks we moved in. We had just moved in and we were unpacking. Did you stay in the house? walked by that room every day and I thought oh gosh my dream home I built and now that you know what happened it was like two weeks and I was like well things are not important in life let me tell you right it does change your priorities when you lose a child but to stay in that house maybe it gets easier as time goes on yeah but what was beautiful was I have a big family and my sisters came and the two of them stayed in that room, and I'm probably going to cry, but my one sister said, oh, the angels came and got him here. I want to be right here. So they had the attitude that made me feel better. I know um, you were a licensed social worker, and then after this happened with your son, you studied grief. Yeah, I became a student of grief is what I like to say, and I started you know, attending grief groups and I would just find out about things because I'm a clinician. I would get, you know, flyers on, you know, or something online about a a training. And one of the greatest things that happened in my life through COVID, I hate to say this, COVID was so awful in so many ways, but, and we were, you know, isolated. And David Kessler, who's a grief specialist, he decided to put together this a podcast thing or, you know, videos twice a week. And he thought the pandemic was only going to be like four to six weeks. And so he was getting all these famous people on and, you know, interviewing regular people and people who lost a spouse or a child or somebody. His son had died also, I think, from a 
drugs, but uh, like a like a same similar thing, like a slip, a relapse. And um, so he had a lot of people on about that. I remember he had Kim Goldman was one of his first people interviewed. And it was just like every twice a week, I just ran to that to watch that online. And um, it ended up being like a year. And so on that, he had Robert Niemeyer from the Portland Institute for Loss and Transition. And of course, being a clinician, I was able to take classes. And I just, I love Robert Niemeyer and his program. It's phenomenal. And I got to learn a lot about grief from a clinical perspective, but also I got to do a lot of the exercises that were like art, you know, kind of different ways to access your feelings. And it really helped me. And then David Kessler, I finished that one. And then David Kessler started a certified grief uh, counselor program or something. I don't know what he calls it, but it, grief educator, certified grief educator. And that was another thing that lasted almost a year. And I was passionate about that too, and really helped me. So but it started with David Kessler's uh, program, which was like an education in itself, probably one of the best educations, just like you're doing, interviewing people, and you hear the story, and so many people have different stories, but yet we all have things in the stories that we connect to. Do you ever feel like you're too immersed in grief? And I ask this from a standpoint of someone who runs a charity that talks about addiction and overdose, like day in, day out, right? And people say, isn't this too much? Like, don't you want to do something else? Don't you want to be distracted by something else? Are you? Do you ever feel like it's too much grief? Too much of a grief topic for you? I I loved it. I fell in love with it. I fell in love with learning about it and the healing that was happening for me, and being able to you know share with someone else and connect. But now that I'm coming on the fourth year, I am starting to open myself up to some different things. Like, it's not that I never did anything else, but my world did become grief, grief groups, grief, this and that. And now I, I'm sort of venturing out and, you know, I took a just an ordinary support group and kind of focused on myself in the last couple of weeks. And it's been really helpful. It's like I, I don't have to have it all the time. I can now expand. I don't know if you feel that way, if that happened for you. But. Yeah, a little bit, I think. I think a little bit like I've sort of expanded what we're doing with the charity even. And it's, it's, yeah. it's evolved right? Yeah. So one of the topics that you were talking about at this conference is guilt, guilt mm -hmm. and grief. And I, in fact, I just had um, someone I know lost her mother and they knew that she was going to die. And she said, I still feel guilty. Like I should have done this. I could have done this. Why does guilt always come after we lose someone close to us? Well, that's a big question. Uh, there's a lot of reasons. I think the what comes to mind right now to answer that is, you know, we don't like to feel we don't have control or that life is random and that we're powerless and helpless. So we kind of put that guilt, if only, if only, or I shoulda. It's a way of the what ifs and if onlys are a way of gaining some control. And we feel like our world's just been, our, our assumptive world, as they call it, has been turned upside down. So we, we are trying to, you know, grab on and gain some control. We don't want to lose somebody else. Our brain says, hey, it's instinct. We don't want anybody else to die. So if I can, could have fixed that one, I can keep these other ones from happening. I mean, there's a lot that starts happening in the brain just instinctually. But it is, it goes hand in hand with grief. But in time, you have to kind of separate that out and look at the, guilt and the regret, you know, are you, are you, did you really do something wrong? Most people didn't, but some people did. And how do you make an amends to that person and move on? But if it's regret, 
you have to delve into those counterfactual thoughts. What if, if only you create, if only I had done this, then everything would have been okay. Well, you have to start put, poking holes in that. Is it true? It is, is it true? Could you, re- you know, we don't know, like I have a friend whose son died by suicide and just today, it's been almost three years and she's still saying today, just today, I feel so guilty today. I mean, it just haunts, especially parents of deaths that we consider, I guess, they could have been prevented. We think they could have been prevented. I think most of us did the best we could with what we knew at the time. Absolutely. Right? I mean, we're parents. We loved our kids. Yes. Uh, Society can be kind of tough on us, though, too. Oh, yeah. Mothers especially. Right. Mothers really take that on. Just for example, oh, my gosh, that's good you brought that up. Uvalde, Texas. I'm working on this talk on guilt and regret. And I'm thinking, you know, here's this crazy guy, sociopath, you could say, who got hold of some guns, goes in and slaughters 19 children. And I'm thinking, well, how are the parents going to feel? I know they're going to be guilty. They're going to be guilty. That wasn't even 24 hours. I was on an errand. I drove home, turned on the TV, and a mother was saying, I shouldn't have left him at school. And I'm like, it gives me chills because right away I knew there's already that internalizing I should have done something different. Somehow I could have controlled this. I I can't handle this randomness. I have to believe that. Like my love could have protected him. My I could have somehow controlled. Life is controllable. Life is just and it isn't. It no, isn't. life is chaotic. We don't I think what Emily's death taught me is that how little I actually control. Me too. Oh All we gosh. can control is our response and our reaction to things that happen. Exactly. When I saw my son and we were calling the paramedics. I, I mean, it wasn't five minutes later, and this direct thought went in my head. I can't fix this. In fact, I thought it was maybe like an hour or two later after she was taken to the morgue. I just thought, I, I can't change this. This isn't the way my life is supposed to go, or her life, or our lives. I mean, the whole not just me, selfishly, but all of us. Like, I can't do anything about it. Like, I'm so used to being able to fix everything. I tried to fix my son having a brain injury. Talk about the unfixable. You know, I, yeah, I was always trying to fix, fix, fix. Yeah, I I relate to that. So getting back to guilt, like, what, what is your advice to parents? We have a lot of listeners to our podcast, you know, newly grieving. Is there something other than questioning, you know, your thoughts surrounding guilt? Anything else you can do? Well, I do want to say in the acute phase of grief, you're going to feel more guilt, and that's just part of the journey, and just, you know, it's there. So guilt is part of grief. you gotta, you got to know that. Um, what do I think people should do? My advice is acknowledge that you have guilt and regret, first step number one, that it's there, that it's common, and then you need to be able to find a way to share it. You have to acknowledge it and then find a way to share it. When we share it with someone, we, we put it out in front of us, and we can take a look at it, and we can, you know, it reduces our guilt and regret, and we can get a feel for it. So then you analyze it. Was it guilt? Did I really, truly do something wrong? I mean, guilt is a fact that you did something wrong, and you want to atone for it, according to Brene Brown. Um, regret is something different. Regret is you looking, it's the counterfactuals. You're looking back with hindsight, and you're saying, um, you know, it's my, I'm taking on more of the guilt than is justified. I'm, I'm doing the counterfactual. So you analyze it. And then there's many other tools, writing a letter. Um, I love David Kessler's exercise of changing the, you write down the what ifs and the if onlys, and then you change the what ifs to even if. So example, my son, when he came in that night, 
um, I sensed something. I just sensed it. I always was aware. And I asked him, I questioned him, because my codependent self started questioning him. And then when he died, I was like, I didn't question him enough. I should have confronted him more. You know, that's, you say, even if, even if I had confronted him more. You're poking holes in that, counterfactual, even if. That isn't true. I could, what was I supposed to stand by his bedside? You know, I mean, this is where you start to get into, oh, okay. And you can start to let go of some of that, you know, that it's almost like self-abuse, the self-blame that we're putting on ourselves. Right. We're both about four years out. Yes. And what do you think has changed the most for you or how you look at your son's death in the last four years? I I still look at it with just shock. I think it takes the brain a long time to process that the person is really gone. I mean, that, in fact, is one of the things they talk about with counterfactual thinking, that the brain, it doesn't want to accept it. It, it wants it to, to distract it from that raw pain. I think now, though, I, 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 you know, it still comes up for me. It's, of course, not as intense. I've done a lot of work, though. You know, I, I did the clinical work, both personally and professionally, and so it gave me a chance to really process it out. And I think you just have to keep looking at it and talking about it and connecting with other people that have the same experience. And that's why you're here at this conference. Yes. Because you're connecting with other people. I have noticed as I've been here, it is different than being in a crowd of people who haven't experienced the same type of trauma. The loss of a child, I think, is the worst thing that you can experience. I know there's all kinds of loss out there, but I think it is probably for a parent the most traumatic thing that can happen. And we all have that similar thing that has happened to us that we are trying to cope with, trying to make sense out of, trying to do something with, you know, in whatever different way that may be. And being around other people like that is something new for me because I really haven't been. Yeah, I think it's vital. I think that that's part of the, where we get to self-compassion. And, you know, this part of self-compassion isn't just that we, you know, say our loving mantras to ourselves, but that we connect to other people and we get that sense of our common humanity. You know, they made mistakes too. Their child died too. They know this suffering. I mean, we walk in here and we don't have to explain. You know, it's an understanding that is so important. And you know, you know, out in the world, we don't, we don't get that understanding. We'll get judgment or stigma on some of our deaths or and why are you still, you're still sad? Why are you still sad? You should be over this by now. But you come here and you can just, you can cry. You can release yourself. You can hug. You can laugh. Well, because last night we had a group of newly grieving in the first couple of years. And you can just see on their faces, you can just see on their faces the pain. Mm-hmm. Where I think that you cannot tell as much more time that goes by. But then surrounding those people newly grieving were people all the way to like 20 years out. You know, people 20 years out, it just, I think maybe you cope with it a little better. Maybe the waves of grief aren't as intense, but it's always there. Yeah, that's true. It is nice to have the long timers here, you know, because they, they do have a way of supporting just like the circle they did last night with the center uh, of the people with the, the shortest time. You know, it just, it showed that, you know, kind of how we hold each other, how we care for each other. You know, the the ones that are the most wounded, we kind of circle around them, but we're all in the circle. We all still hurt. We all still have a heartbreak. There's nothing, nothing like the loss of a child. So as you work with people, as you talk to people, 
What advice would you have for anybody who's newly grieving? Take it one day at a time. Find ways. Even a minute at a time. A minute, yeah. Just be gentle with yourself. You know, I had to really learn how to take care of myself in a way I never did. You know, listen to yourself. If you need to rest, rest. When, when people would call me on the phone, you know, they, God love them. They were so good to me. But I had to say, I got to get off the phone. There would be a wall that would come up. And I took care of myself. I need to get off now. How you eat, how you, you know, go about your day. I, I would have one thing on my list of things to do. Sometimes I didn't even get that done. But, you know, just just uh, my advice is just get some support. Get some support and be gentle with yourself. All of your knowledge is just so valuable. It's been a pleasure to meet you. Well, it's been a pleasure to meet you too. And I want to hear more about your daughter and your, your program and what you do. So the good connection. Nice to meet you. I'll bring you my final interview from the Bereaved Parents Conference next week with grief coach Pat Shevland, who is joining me for a second time on this podcast. Until then, check out other episodes of Grieving Out Loud and read my blog on our website, emilyshope.foundation. If you like what you're hearing, please consider giving us a positive review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage.